Well, we'll go ahead and read Ephesians chapter 4. I won't read the whole chapter this evening. I'll begin in verse 17 and read to the end of the chapter. We looked last week at verses 17 to 24, and this evening we're going to be in verses 25 to 30. And then we'll hopefully finish up the chapter next week. So Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, But only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Again, we're in Ephesians chapter 4 this evening. If you've just come in, we'll we'll be in verses 25 to 30. If you were here last week, uh, then hopefully you'll remember some of the recap, but I want to just walk us back one week and a few verses and remind us where we're coming from as we come into verse 25 tonight. So last week we saw in verses 17 to 24, that the Christian, when we learned Christ, when we believed, the Christian put off the old self and put on the new self. The old self, or the old man, is literally what what it says. If you look down, um, I believe it's verse 21, 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. That's literally the old man. So the old man is who we were in Adam. It's who we were when we were enslaved to sin and guilt and condemnation, when we were separated from God. That's the old man. And the old self, we saw, had an old walk. There was a manner of walking, a manner of life that was characteristic of the old self. And and Paul describes that old walk as darkness, ignorance, 
alienation from God, hardness of heart, and a life that was full of sinful passions and pursuits. But then we saw that when we heard and learned and received and believed in Christ, and when we were converted to him, we laid aside the old self. And literally, we, we read in other places of the, of the New Testament that the old self was crucified at that point in time. He was put to death. Everything that was true of us as the old man in Adam, all of the guilt, condemnation, enslavement to sin, separation from God, bondage to Satan, all of those things were put to death when we put on the new man and took off the old man. And when we put on the new man, everything that is true of Christ and all of his benefits for his people became true about us. We were delivered decisively, once and forever, from condemnation and from guilt, from enslavement to sin. Christ's righteousness became our righteousness. Christ's life became our life. Everything that Christ died to secure for his people became ours the moment we believed in him. We put on a new man. The old man was crucified. And if we are now in Christ, that is our identity. That is who you are as a believer. You are a new man, a new self. The old man, the old self, has been crucified. We still wrestle with the lingering effects of the old man, the old habits that need to be put to death still, the flesh that we struggle against. But the old you, the old man, enslaved to sin and bondage and death, has been put to death. And you've been raised as a new man in Christ, created as a new creature. And the point of last week's message was that because we have put on the new man, because the old man's been crucified and we have become a new man in Christ, because of all of that, we should also put away the old walk and begin to walk in a manner that's appropriate to our calling and our identity. That was last week, and Paul is continuing that theme this week into verse 25 and the rest of the chapter and really the rest of the letter. But now he gets more specific. Last week he said, generally, lay aside the old walk, and he said, put on, he said, because when you learned Christ, you put on the new man. But he didn't necessarily begin yet to say specifically what this new walk looks like. But in verse 25 and then, and then the verses that follow, he gets specific. He starts to tell us specifically what kinds of habits are fitting and appropriate for a new man in Christ. And he doesn't just tell us what habits to lay aside. He doesn't just say stop doing certain things. But he says, stop doing certain things by doing other things. You put off all of those bad habits that are characteristic of the old man, and you do that not just by saying, I'm going to stop all of these things, but you do that by putting on new habits. You kill the old by bringing to life the new. And really, that's the, that's the process of sanctification in the Christian life. If, if your walk with Christ looks like you saying, I have to stop, I have to stop, I have to stop, I have to stop, sinning in this way or in that way, then that's only half the battle. That, that's not going to get you anywhere, really. The Christian life is, I must put this aside. I must put it away, this sin, whatever this habit is, I must put it away, and instead, I must pursue this, what is good. And the underlying foundation for all of that is not, I must do this so that I can become something, but I must do this because what, of Christ, what Christ has done in me already. We put off certain old bad habits characteristic of the old man, 
We put on new habits, characteristic of the new man, because we really have been made new in Christ. So we're looking this evening then at some of the specific habits that Christ demands through Paul. He demands, he requires that we put these on because we are his new creatures, these specific habits. And there are four of them in verses 25 to 30. And I'll walk through them here really quickly, just mention the four, and then we'll look at each one individually. So first, Paul tells us that we should speak truth instead of lies in verse 25. Speak truth instead of lies. And then in verses 26 and 27, he says we should be righteously angry, not sinfully angry. Righteously angry instead of sinfully angry. And then in verse 28, he says we should work hard instead of stealing. Work hard instead of stealing. And then in verses 29 and 30, we should speak edifying words instead of rotten words. Edifying words instead of rotten words. So we'll walk through each of those, and that's as far as we'll get this evening, and then next week hopefully finish chapter 4. So first, Paul tells us, verse 25, that we should lay aside falsehood, and instead we should put on speaking the truth. He says, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now, when we first read this, at least when I first read this and come into the passage, I I make an immediate individual application to myself, and that's not a bad thing, uh, in the sense that I, I read it and I think it's saying, Luke, don't lie, just tell the truth. And I think that's right. We shouldn't lie and we should tell the truth. That's a good application. But it's bigger than that in Paul's context of the, of the letter and the way that Paul writes in other letters as well. When Paul talks about falsehood and lies, what he has in mind is an entire way of thinking that is contrary to God's truth. It's an entire way of thinking that has flipped God's truth upside down. Paul says in Romans that, they, uh, that instead of worshiping God as creator, they worshiped and served the creature And he says that was the lie that the Gentiles believed. They flipped the truth of God upside down. They worshiped creation rather than the creator. And if you remember last week in verses 17 and 18, or we can look there really quick, verses 17 and 18, look what Paul says, and I've referenced this, but look at it once more. This is what Paul says about what our old life looked like, our old walk. Think about what it tells us about truth. What is he saying about the truth or the lies that we were believing when we were the old man. He says, no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of heart. Futile minds. Why were their minds futile? Because they didn't have the truth. And then ignorant of the truth, and then darkened in their understanding. Paul's saying what, what used to characterize you before coming to Christ was falsehood, was lies about God, lies about creation. And we saw that it was a willing believing of the lies, it was a willing rejection of the truth, it was intentional on our part. As the old man outside of Christ, we purposefully suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness so that we could believe the lies that our flesh wanted to believe, that our sinful hearts wanted to believe. It was willing, but nonetheless, it was a denial of the truth. It was believing something that was false, a lie. 
But the new man is a man of truth. If you think back to the way that Paul spoke about this new man in verses 20 and 21, he says, you did not learn Christ in this way. You didn't learn Christ in all of these false ways. When you learned Christ, you learned that the truth is in Jesus. You understood, if I want to understand truth, the only place I can look is Jesus, because everything else around me is telling me something that's false. And if I want truth, the place that it's found is in the person of Christ, Jesus, what he says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you want truth, you go to Jesus. And then he says again, not only did we learn Christ in that way and learn that all truth is in Jesus, but he says, when you were created as a new man, he says in verse 24, you were created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You are no longer being fashioned and shaped according to the corruptions of this world, is what Paul's saying. But you, are being, you have been fashioned and shaped according to God's truth, so that he is bringing forth in you and through you his truth, causing you to be a display of his truth. And so we learned truth, we were created in truth, and now Paul says, as this new man that has been created in truth, he says in verse 25, lay aside falsehood. Lay it all aside. Everything that once characterized the way you used to think about life, about yourself, about God, all of it, lay it aside. And when you speak to one another, speak to one another in a way that helps us combat the lies of the world. When you speak to each other, help, help one another to combat the lies about our identity. Speak to one another God's truth so that it helps us fight the lies about what it is to be happy and fulfilled. Because we hear lies all day long. We go to work and we hear lies or we sit at home and we, we have our minds filled with things that are not true so often. And when the body of Christ is together, we are to be helping one another combat the lies that counter God's truth. The lies about sexuality, the lies about finances, the lies about what is good and what is evil. Everywhere we look, we are being lied to, and our own hearts often lie to us. And what Paul is saying here is you put all of those lies aside when you put on Christ. Everything that was false, you laid it aside. You've come to understand truth as, as it is in Jesus about all of God's creation, about God himself. Therefore, speak to one another in truth. Help each other. Combat the lies of the world. Help each other be rooted and grounded and established in truth. Because you're members of one another. We're part of the same body. And so when you help one member get rooted and grounded in the truth, you're helping the whole body be rooted and grounded in God's truth. So that's the first bad habit that we should put aside. Falsehood. We shouldn't speak falsely about God, about one another, about the world. But we should speak truth in a way that strengthens rather than leads astray. And then second, verses 26 and 27, we should be righteously angry instead of sinfully angry. We should put aside sinful anger, and we should take up righteous anger. Verse 26, the Apostle Paul says, be angry and yet do not sin. There's a positive command, be angry. That's actually a command. Be angry, he says. And then a negative command, do not sin. Take off sinful anger, but put on righteous anger. That's what Paul's saying. So that's an odd command, I think, for us. When we hear, be angry, 
At least for me, that's an odd command. I wouldn't expect to find be angry as a command in the New Testament. In fact, if you look down at verse 32 or verse 31 of this chapter, Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. So which is it? Be angry, he says in verse 26. Put away anger, he says in verse 31. So which is it? Are we to be angry or are we not to be angry? Of course, the answer to that depends on what kind of anger we're talking about. We're to not be sinfully angry, but we certainly are to exercise righteous anger when it's appropriate. We see righteous anger in the life of Jesus. We don't see the kind of anger that is inconsistent and inappropriate for the Christian life in the life of Jesus, but we do see the kind of anger that's perfectly consistent with the Christian life in the life of Jesus. In Mark 3, when Jesus healed a man with a withered hand, the Pharisees were watching him, trying to catch him in the, the sin of healing on the Sabbath, and their hearts were hardened, and they were hypocritical and unloving. We read, Jesus looked at them with anger. In Mark 10, when his own disciples were forbidding children from coming to him, they were preventing the children from coming to him, we read, Jesus was indignant. He was angry. And then there's John 2, of course, where Jesus drives out the money changers, overturns the tables. John, that's not John 2, is it? I have the wrong reference. But John, later in John, I think. We all know the story. Jesus overturns the tables. He drives out the money changers with a cord. He's angry. He's angry, and rightly so. But the question is, what makes Jesus angry? What provokes him to that sort of response? Angry at the Pharisees. Angry at his own disciples for preventing the children from coming and angry at the money changers. What is it? Well, in each of those examples, if we were to boil them down to the essence of what offense was present in them, it was on the one hand a distorting of God's glory and blasphemy of his name, and on the other hand, it was harm to God's image bearers. Those are the two things that provoke righteous anger, a distortion of God's glory or blasphemy of his name and doing unjust harm to his image bearers. And when we encounter those sorts of things, it is right for us to respond with anger. Ian Hamilton, on this passage, he says, Likeness to God will mean that we share his anger at what sin has done in his good creation. The Christian is never to be stoically indifferent to the trampling of God's truth in society or in the church. In other words, if we see God's name being blasphemed, if we see injustice being committed against God's image bearers, then it is unlike God not to be angry. Righteous anger is moved and energized with a zeal to defend what is good and abolish what is evil. Isn't that, God's, is that not God's heart? To defend and promote and cultivate what is good and to do away with forever what is evil. That's anger. 
And that's also the best litmus test to determine whether our anger is righteous anger or sinful anger. Righteous anger always defends what is good and always seeks to eradicate what is evil. Sinful anger, what does it defend? Often ourselves, our own comforts, our own reputations, what we think we need, but not what is good according to God's commandments. And there's a a number of more specific ways we could outline what sinful anger looks like. Paul understands anger is a powerful emotion and can be used powerfully as a tool for righteousness when it's based on the right things and used in the right ways. But anger is also a dangerous emotion that can be radically misused and cause terrible damage when it's based on the wrong things and used in the wrong ways. Think about how many homes have been destroyed by unrighteous anger. Think about how many relationships have been severed because of unrighteous anger. How many lives have been taken, murders committed, because of unrighteous anger? It is a very dangerous tool. And I think all of us could look back on our own lives and see ways that we have misused the tool of the emotion of anger for unrighteous reasons and caused terrible damage often in the lives of the people we love the most. So how do we know if our anger is righteous or unrighteous? Well, I've already mentioned it's unrighteous, it's sinful, if it's self-focused. When anger ceases to be centered on God's glory, God's purposes, and the good of God's creation, and it becomes centered on my rights and my mistreatment or mistreatment of me, then we know we're exercising sinful anger. I've moved myself to the center, my anger revolves around me, rather than around God and his glory and his purposes. And we know also that anger is sinful when it controls us, when it rules us. We read that God is slow to anger. And when we read that, of course, it means he's not eager to punish. He is patient. He's kind. He's willing to bear with people for a long time. But for him to be slow to anger means he's in perfect control of his anger. It is a tool that he's able to use in perfect wisdom with perfect control to accomplish his good purposes. How often is our anger described in that way versus something that has taken over our minds and our hearts and our reactions in a way that we're no longer in control of it? And it's no longer used by us as a tool for promoting what is good and removing what is evil, but it is used as a tool in our minds and in our hands to promote my selfish desires in that moment, whatever they might be. And it's controlling us. It's ruling us. When anger rules us, controls us, it is sinful. Instead, it should be under our control. And we should be able to use our anger as a godly emotion to produce godly results. And then third, we know that anger is sinful when it's not governed by love. That's simple, but it's a good reminder. Anger is sinful when it's not governed by love. By love. We can be angry about the way that someone's sin has caused devastation. We can be angry at the person, but we cannot allow our anger to be turned into resentment or to hatred. Jesus was angry at the hypocrisy and the lovelessness of the Pharisees. But he also told us that we should be perfect, like our Heavenly Father is perfect, and the way we do that, he says, is by loving our enemies by praying for those who persecute us. Anger hates what sin does to God's good creation. But 
righteous anger at the same time longs for redemption rather than ruin. And even in our anger, love still causes us to grieve the brokenness of the individual. This is how one uh, pastor that I I read, he he described it this way. He said, those who follow Jesus' example do get angry, but like Jesus, their anger is laced with grief. Occasionally, they flip tables in the temple, but they also weep over Jerusalem. We also know that anger is sinful when we allow it to linger and fester and don't deal with it. Note what Paul says in the next verse, in verse 27. Actually, second half of verse 26 and into verse 27. He says, Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. How do we know that anger is sinful? Because it just stays there. When it lingers, we are responding to anger in a sinful way. Righteous anger is dealt with before the Lord promptly. It's laid at his feet in humble trust. But sinful sinful anger just lingers and festers and sits there on our heart. And it leaves the door wide open for Satan to come in and to wreak all kinds of havoc. We should take our anger to the Lord. We should express our grief to him. We should cry out for justice. We should resolve to do what needs to be done for the promotion of what is good. So I'm not arguing for passive response to anger. We should be resolved to do what is good and respond to injustice rightly. But ultimately, we should roll the burden of our anger on the Lord and trust him. Wrath is his. Whatever wrath needs to be executed, it belongs to him. Justice belongs to him. Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. He didn't revile when he was reviled because he trusted his father. We roll our anger on the Lord. We trust him with it. Satan can't create anger in our hearts. That's us. We do that, the sinful anger. But he will undoubtedly prey on it. It's a sitting duck for him if we let it sit on our hearts. He will creep in and he will turn our sinful anger that's left undealt with into bitterness, hatred, resentment, division, discord, and whatever else he would love to see penetrate the life of a Christian in the church and the world at large. And the longer we allow anger to simply sit there on our hearts without trying to resolve it or without fully casting it on the Lord, the more we're, we're allowing Satan room and opportunity to do that. So it is right for the Christian to be angry. We're commanded to be angry, but we must be on guard and not be deceived into thinking that our sinful anger is righteous. Anger must be dealt with in the right way, must be directed in the right way, and it must be based on the right kinds of things. We should be righteously angry, not sinfully angry. So that's the second habit that we should get rid of, this sinful anger, and the new habit that's conformed to this new man in Christ is righteous anger. And then third, we should work hard instead of stealing. In verse 28, we should work hard instead of stealing. So most, uh, well, let's read verse 28. He says, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his hands, his own hands, what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. He who steals must steal no longer. So 
Probably stealing was a fairly normal practice in Ephesus, uh, especially the kind of petty stealing uh, that Paul talks about in other places in his letters, like Titus chapter 2, this taking a little bit here and there from your employer, from your master if you were a slave, a little bit of food here, a little bit of items there in order to, to be able to provide for your family or uh, meet your needs. So stealing was probably a fairly normal practice in Ephesus at the time, but Paul is saying it can't be normalized in the Christian life. What, what is normal for an unbelieving society, what's normal for the old man cannot be normalized in the new man. That's how the old man lived in a lost society, but the new man must live differently. He must labor, he says, performing with his own hands what is good. So rather than stealing, you put away the old habit of stealing, and instead you put on the new habit of working hard, performing with your own hands what is good. The word labor there, it can be translated to toil, to grow weary from work, to work hard, to be engaged in physical struggle. The idea is simply that effort and hard work is involved in doing what Paul's commanding us here. Effort, hard work, diligence. And obviously in our context here in 21st century Western society, that doesn't mean that every single one of us is going to be engaged in rigorous physical labor. When he says work with your hands, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have a manual labor job. You may, but that's not obviously not what Paul is saying about everybody. But the idea is that whatever you do, whether it's in an office or outside somewhere building something or in a home or in a classroom, whatever you do, you're to work hard at it. You're to apply effort, diligence, intentionality. This isn't the only place in the New Testament Paul gives this sort of command He does it a number of other times, saying that we should work with our hands. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians, he says, if we don't work with our hands, we shouldn't eat. So whatever our labor is, we should work, and we should work at it hard. We should put away the old habit of stealing, put on the new habit of hard work. Of course, there's going to be situations in the church. There are going to be times where a brother or a sister, uh, we read about these instances in the New Testament, where a brother or a sister is not going to be able to work for whatever reason, and therefore is going to have to rely on help from others in the church body. And that's why Paul gives the next command or instruction. Not only should you work with your hands, but you should work in order that you'll have enough to be able to provide for the one who has need. So the goal of working hard with our hands is provision, but not just provision for ourselves. The goal of working hard is being able to provide for people who have need, especially believers. Galatians 6 tells us to do good to all men, but especially the household of God. We should be quick to share resources and time with all people, but we should be especially quick to share finances with one another when we have needs, is what Paul is saying in Galatians. It's a basic practice that we see in the life of the early church. Um, In the book of Acts, we, we see it repeatedly that they had all things in common. They were sharing their possessions so that no one had any need. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul instructs those who are rich to, on the one hand, enjoy their riches. It's not wrong to be wealthy. It's not wrong to, to, to be able to buy certain good things and live a certain kind of life. Paul says, enjoy those riches. God's given, to you, given them to you for that purpose. But, more importantly, fix your hope on eternal riches. Be rich in good works. And he says, be generous and ready to share. So he's not saying that we all have to live impoverished lives. 
What he is saying is that whatever measure of wealth God has given us, to whatever degree, should be held onto loosely by us, not having set our hope on it and also not refusing to share it when we see a brother or sister in need or others in need at times. So, on the one hand then, earning money is a valid pursuit. I think sometimes maybe we, we, we think that's wrong, that's unspiritual. We think money is only temporary, only passing, and we should have no concern for it. But Paul says, actually work hard. And the purpose you're supposed to work hard is to gain money so that when you gain money, you'll be able to provide for yourself so you're not dependent on other people, but also so that you can provide for other people. Certainly, that's not the only motivation for working. There's value in work even if we don't make money or even if we don't make much money. It's honoring and pleasing to God simply to do our work and to do it well. He instructs slaves in the New Testament who weren't making any money to honor God and work with all of their hearts in whatever task they've been given because that pleases God. And so it's not, making money is not the only incentive. Doing the work, benefiting others just simply through our efforts, that's pleasing to God. But a valid pursuit, a valid goal in working is making money. It's a good goal. And if we have opportunity, it's not wrong to take a job that pays more money. If it's, if it's wise, if you consult with other people, it's not wrong to do that. Again, I think, I'm not saying you should take whatever job comes that offers more money, but it's not unspiritual to think, if I take this job that provides more money, and if it doesn't cause disobedience or harm in other areas of my life, and I think it's something I can do to the honor and glory of God, well, an added benefit is I'll have more money to be able to share for the work of the gospel for the provision of those in need. That's a good thing. That's not a carnal or fleshly desire. So think about the contrast then from where we were as unbelievers, this selfish desire to have without working, to to find the easiest way to fulfill our selfish desires and provide for ourselves by stealing. And Paul says the very opposite of that is working hard, not just not working and stealing, working hard and not just so that you can have, but working hard so that you can provide. So not just taking from other people, but now giving to other, not just not taking from other people, but now earning so that you can give. It's a complete reversal, a complete transformation from a selfish, stealing lifestyle to a hardworking, generous lifestyle. That's what Paul's saying. That's consistent with the new person that you are in Christ. And then lastly, in verses 29 and 30, we should speak edifying words instead of rotten words. As God's new creation, our words should edify, they should build up the body of Christ rather than tear it down or corrupt it. We see that in verses 29 and 30. He says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So once again, there's a negative command, and then there's a positive command. Negatively, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Unwholesome there literally means rotten. That's why I've titled the section Rotten Words. Unwholesome means rotten, unprofitable, useless, worthless. Let no rotten, worthless, useless, unprofitable word come out of your mouth. That's what Paul's telling us to do. The emphasis here is on the effect of our words. 
So he's already told us not to speak things that are false. Here he's emphasizing the way that our words affect the people around us, and especially the body of Christ. We should avoid rotten words that tear down. We should speak instead words that build up. So what are rotten words specifically? What do those kinds of words look like? Um, I think it hardly needs to be worked through because we all know what kinds of words tear down. We've spoken them ourselves, and we've experienced them from others. Cynical words that produce doubt in others and in ourselves. Harsh and critical words that produce discouragement and fear and suspicion. Gossip and careless words that produce division and discord. Grumbling and complaining to one another that produces equally ungrateful hearts in other people and selfish thinking. Self-absorbed words, words about me, 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 which produce self-centeredness, not just in us, but in the people we talk to. They get so tired of us, they can only think about themselves and getting out of the conversation with us. Rotten words are anything that comes out of our mouth that eats away at the health and strength of the body of Christ. Anything that eats away at the health and strength of the body of Christ. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. What are words that edify? What words build up the body of Christ and strengthen the body? Well, I think Paul in Philippians 4 sums this up well when he's encouraging the Philippians to remember the things that he told them, and he says, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, we could say those are the kinds of things we should speak to each other. What's that? Whatever's worthy of praise, what would God delight in? What's pure, good? Those are the things we should speak to one another. And Paul says we should speak them according to the need of the moment so that they will give grace to those who hear. According to the need of the moment. Understanding one another, understanding what the need is, and speaking a well-timed, appropriate word of encouragement or instruction or even correction at times. Those are the words that God uses, Paul says, to impart grace so that it will give grace to those who hear. When we speak well-timed words of encouragement and correction and admonishment and truth to one another, that's what God uses to build up his bride and his body. And then notice, lastly, in that same section, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So if you have an NASB translation, then you notice that verse 30 starts a whole new sentence do not grieve. There's a period after the word here at the end of verse 29. So in, if we were to read the NASB, it's easy to think that these two statements are completely disconnected. On the one hand, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, and then another command, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. But in the original language, those two sentences are actually combined into one thought with a connection and. And most commentators argue, and it seems to be a valid argument, that when Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, he's directly connecting it to unwholesome words that destroy rather than build up the body of Christ. In other words, the idea of grieving the Holy Spirit is directly connected to the kinds of words that we say to one another. 
The kind of words we say, whether they're edifying on the one hand or rotten on the other, will determine whether we are pleasing the Holy Spirit or grieving the Holy Spirit. And why is that? Why are unedifying words grievous to the Holy Spirit? When we think about the Holy Spirit's mission, then it's a little bit more helpful and clear with regard to why it's grievous to him that we would speak unedifying words. The Holy Spirit's mission is to build up the church, to edify the body of Christ, to teach us, to counsel us, to comfort us, to strengthen us, to unite us, to build us up into the fullness and completion of Christ. So when we speak to one another in a way that eats away at that purpose, eats away at the church's unity or the church's strength or the church's stability and serves to bring about destruction rather than edification, we are directly opposing the work of the Holy Spirit. We're attempting to tear down with our speech what the Spirit of God is building up. The Spirit delights to see the church growing in strength and courage and joy, and he is grieved when he sees the effect of our words to one another. When they're rotten, they tear down and they spoil and discourage the health of the church. And then to help us feel the weight of it a little bit more, Paul adds, by whom, this Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This Holy Spirit that you grieve when you speak rotten words to one another is the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. To be sealed by the Spirit, we saw this back in Ephesians chapter 1 many months ago, means that the Spirit is given to us as authentication. He authenticates God's possession of us. To be sealed means that we have the authenticating sign that we belong to God. The, the imagery, it comes from letters in the ancient world where a king would put his seal or his stamp on the letter. And often what it was was a ring with a certain imprint, and he would imprint that ring or he would press that ring into the wax so that it would leave the imprint of his signet ring. And it would leave his seal on the letter so that whenever that letter was delivered to someone in some far-off land, they would know that it bears the legitimate authority of the king. It really is his. And Paul is saying, every single Christian, the moment we believed the gospel, he says back in Ephesians 1, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit, and we were given this mark of authentication that we belong to God. And this Holy Spirit who indwells us and enables us to address God as our Father, he's the guarantee of our inheritance. He's the down payment. We are tasting already in this life what we will spend eternity enjoying, the presence of God, the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which we will one day know in its fullness. We have already tasted now. He is authenticating God's possession of us. He is securing and guaranteeing for us our final redemption and inheritance. He is a gift from God. He is God himself. He lives with us. He lives with his church. He dwells with us in gatherings like this when we've gathered to worship God. And Paul says, this Holy Spirit, God himself, who indwells you for the purpose of sealing you as God's own possession, that Holy Spirit is grieved when we are careless with our words. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. That's the great motivation for speaking wholesome, edifying words to one another. Because we want to please him. Because we love him. We want to do what he delights in rather than what grieves him. And so we join him in his purposes of edifying the church rather than opposing him in his efforts by attempting to tear down the church with our words, tear down one another, individuals. 
So those are the four new habits then that we as the new man should put on, habits that are consistent with the new person that we've become in Christ. It's also important to remember, just in very quick conclusion, that Paul is telling us not that we should live this way in order to gain something. So all of these commandments that he's given us, they are not every other religion in one, in one sense could preach what I just preached tonight if you just take Christ out of the picture. Every other religion would say, don't lie. Every other religion would say, don't be sinfully angry. Every other religion would say, you should work hard. Every other religion would say, you should speak edifying words that build people up. Every other religion would say that. And every other religion in one way or another would say, you have to do all of those things in order to really show that you are a true follower of whatever God or ideology it is. But Christianity says, you do all of those things because God has already done everything. You are already a new creature in Christ. You're not trying to gain anything. You're not trying to earn anything. Christ, through his work on the cross, on your behalf, has gained everything. And by the Holy Spirit's work in your heart of making you a new man, there's nothing more that you can do to make yourself right in the sight of God. It's all the work of Christ, and therefore, in that freedom, we obey. If we get that mixed up, or if you're here this evening and you think about Christianity the opposite way, that Christianity is about doing these kinds of things to show that you really are a good person, then you've got it all backwards. We do these things not because we're good people. We do these things because we are rotten people by nature, and God has graciously redeemed us from our rotten corruption. And he has made us new, and we love him, and we live for him because we want to live the way that he created us in Christ to live, not because we want to become something that we're not. And so we are new in Christ. We've become a new man, a new self. And as the new self, we're putting on these new habits. And these new habits should characterize the totality of our lives. Everything that we do should be characterized by habits that are fitting and appropriate to our new identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need his help for that. We need the Holy Spirit's strength. Maybe as I spoke about anger, maybe you can think, I can think of many examples where anger seems to come out naturally. How do we get past that? We remember, I'm not who I used to be. God has rescued me from that. And through his grace and in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, I do not have to any longer. I can be righteously angry in a way that honors him, not sinfully angry, the way that used to characterize me. Or put any other sin to it, name any other sin, anything that used to characterize you, you've been set free from it. Now walk in newness of life with new habits that are pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you have not only made us new in Christ, but you've also told us what it looks like now to live as new creatures. We thank you that you have loved us even when so many of the things we've talked about this evening characterized us as believing and speaking lies and being hateful and angry at others sinfully and wrongly, being so selfish, tearing down with our words rather than doing what's pleasing to you. Father, so many of those things characterized us and linger on still in our sinful flesh. 
But you have set us free from the bondage of all of those, and we worship you for that. We thank you for that, and we pray that you would help us as new creatures in Christ to walk in a manner that's worthy of that calling, in a manner that reflects the beauty of the character of our Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.